0: It was about 9 or 9.30 that morning when they finally crucified Jesus. Nailing, nailing him to the cross was probably a fitting, merciful end to what had already been hours of abuse. 9 or 9.30 crucifixion, they probably, the soldiers were probably led to the garden about midnight by Judas. Betrayed with a kiss. In custody for hours. Now you understand something that Prisoners back in those days were not afforded the rights and the privileges and the respect that we afford prisoners today. If you were in custody of the Roman guards, before you ever got to any judges, you would find yourself bruised and battered and spat upon and abused. Before Jesus ever saw Annas or Caiaphas or Pilate, he already was bru- bruising from the beating and the abuse. And, the, you know, Robert depicted in his words a while ago how they pulled out his beard, how they mistreated him. I think sometimes that slips off our... We just kind of hide that back in the part of our heart that doesn't affect us. Somewhere before daybreak, They started the, quote, legal proceedings. If you know anything about Jewish law, you know everything was illegal about it because it was before daylight. You weren't supposed to do it before daylight. But you see, they had a problem. Jesus was a problem. And they had to deal with him. And they needed to deal with him quickly because they had at least two, possibly three Sabbaths coming right on the next day. So they had to deal with this quickly. By the time they nailed Jesus to a cross, you could not even recognize him as a human. A few years ago, the Passion of the Christ came out, and Mel Gibson chose to use one of two scourging posts. I happen to think he used the wrong one. He used the one that was a low-cut post where the guy would lay around on the ground. You remember the, uh, you remember the uh, uh, scene, if you saw the movie? Quite likely it was a post that was so big he couldn't even wrap his hands around it. And they hung him up there because really what they didn't want him to do, they really didn't want him his feet to touch the ground. They wanted his back taunt. So when that soldier got that cat of nine tails and ripped it around his back, his back would be taunt and it would rip it. In fact, many people died at the scourge. They were disemboweled because when those bones and rocks wrapped around the body, he would give it a little yank and it would literally rip him to where he became disemboweled. When they cut him down from the scourging post, by the way, they started making fun of him because he was supposed to be the king of the Jews, the rulers. And they made fun of him. They made a crown, put on his head, and they beat on him. They gave him a... A staff, and called him a called it a scepter, made him uh, made fun of him that he was a ruler. And then, when they couldn't make any more fun of him, they took the staff and they beat on his head on the crown of thorns, so it would go deeper into his body, the, deeper into his scalp. And that scalp is the most vascular part of the body. Just when you think he can't bleed anymore, he's bleeding again. Finally, they took him down. We know that he walked down the Via della Rosa, probably carrying the the patibulum. Uh, That's the cross member, the cross on his back. That weighed about 125 pounds. In his condition, there was no way that he could carry a full 500-pound cross. Normally, they put the stipes in the ground, and he just and the, and the crucified ones were carrying the cross member down the Via della Rosa, and and he carried it there. And when they laid him down on the cross, they didn't put his the nail in his hand like we always think, because if they had it, the weight of his body would have pulled it apart. They generally found that soft spot between uh, those two bones in your wrist, and they put it right there, and right there. And then they crossed his feet as they hung him up. They pulled him up by that cross member and those nails into a little slot, and then they took his feet and nailed his feet to the cross. Now on the cross there was this little thing called a seat dial. There's a little little, little little bitty seat there, and you think, well that'd be fine. That's good. That helps. Except they'd made it sharp. You see, the Romans knew how to make the crucifixion painful. The issue was torture, not death. Now, don't you get this picture? He's hanging there. His knees are bent. His arms are, are splayed and they're nailed. And so if he stands up on his feet, first of all, if he hangs down, he can't breathe. And the pain shoots through his hands from the nerve endings. And so then he stands up on his feet, now his feet become like electricity as he can't as he can't get away from the pain. Most most crucified ones died by looking up to heaven and gasping for breath because they finally gave out of energy. And they just they were sucking for air. It's in this condition that Jesus is standing on the cross and he speaks at least seven times. We know at least seven times we know that he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We know that he, that he took time from dying to take care of, to get John to take care of his mother. We know he took time from dying to save one. Today you'll be with me in paradise. We know he took time on the cross reciting the Psalms because he recited Psalm 23, 22 when he said, Father, why have you, you forsaken me? Then you saw his humanity when he said, I'm thirsty. And then an obvious surrender to the elements. He says, Father... Into your hands I commend my spirit. But the telling message from the cross, that message that stands and transcends all millennia, transcends all mankind, transcends all people, was one Greek word. Tetelestai. In English it says, It is finished. It's the title of our message today. It is finished. I'm not going to ask you to... I want you to stay with me, but the, the scripture will be on the screen. And it reads like this. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! Exclamation point. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, and he died. Heavenly Father, I pray that tonight the enormity of what you did on the cross will not escape us. The pain you went through. The shame you endured. The suffering that accompanied it. Thank you for loving us enough to make it a way. Thank you for saying, Tetelestai. In your name. So my question is, what's finished? Was he saying that it finally, this punishment of this day is finished? Was he saying finally the torment of these last three years, how the, how the Pharisees, the religious leaders and the Romans always were on his back? Was he saying all, now all these things are passed away? I submit to you that in that word, tetelestai, that he is saying that there are some things that's passed away, some things that's done, some things that's over, but he's also saying, finally, some things are complete. In the minutes that remain, I want to suggest three to you. One of those things that's passed, one of those things that's done, one of those things that's uh, um, over, one of those things he's taken care of, here's what I'll tell you. The power, the power of sin is finished. <laughs> now, I didn't say sin was finished. Don't get confused. We're still all sinners. The Bible says we're sinners by nature and choice. All that sin is fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. But while sin is present among us, please listen. Sin at the cross, sin lost its power over us. We don't have to live in sin anymore because at the cross, Jesus made a way for sin to be, uh, um, uh, if you will, neutered. You see, when Jesus died, He took our sin on His back. In fact, He did that because the wages... The payment, the compensation, the paycheck for sin, even today, is death. How do I know that? Because the Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. For the wages of sin is death. You know what that means? Now, please listen, because this this escapes us. Every time we sin, every time you sin, Every time I sin, a death is required. Scriptures tell us when we sin on purpose, we crucify Him all over again. God can't stand sin. Sin has to be dealt with. God wants to have a relationship with us, but He can't stand. He will. He refuses to live in the shadow of sin. He refuses to commune with His creation when they're sinners. Now, how do I know that? Because He created Adam by scooping a little dust out of His hands and forming Him, And then He did surgery on Adam and made uh, Eve. And when they sinned, He kicked them out of the garden and He put a flaming... Uh, an angel with a flaming sword to not let them back in. Folks, I'm afraid that today that we take sin too lightly. We think we're too good and we think God's too forgiving. Maybe the the modern day way to say this is that we think God is like our society Our society wants us to put up with sin. They tell us that it's okay to sin. In fact, go home and look at your TV tonight. They'll be sin and calling you to sin all over the place. We're supposed to be tolerant of sin. God is intolerant. If God is tolerant of sin, he owes Jesus an apology. But knowing that we're sinners, knowing we can't pay the price. Romans 5 8 says, God demonstrated his love in this way. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a good news, bad news scenario. <laughs> the bad news is that you are a sinner. The good news is Jesus died for your sin. The bad news is sin is still present. But the good news is that if you'll invite Jesus into your life, He died for your sin. You invite Him into your life. You walk with Him. You live for Him. You hold on to Him. And sin cannot hold you captive. In fact, I'll go this far to say, if sin is holding you captive and you're not stirred up inside, then you don't have the Holy Spirit inside to stir you, which means that you're not even saved. When Jesus comes into your life, the sin that seems to have a power hold on you will be defeated. The power of sin was finished at the cross. You're not going to like this next one. The second thing that was finished, done, over with, beat up, beat down, turned around at the cross, is the prominence of self is finished. Oops. Just stepped on the American God. The American Idol is not those guys on TV. The American Idol is self. In 2002, Rick Warren wrote a, wrote a book that even today is one of the most popular books on the market. title of it is Purpose, driven life. Many people just look at that title of the book and they, you know, I just want to tell you something. Somebody gets into a public eye, they're going to get bad press. And people just throw it aside and say, that's just driving you to success. He's just trying to tell you how to be successful. He's trying to tell you how to make it all about him. Now, folks, I'm not telling you to be mediocre. We should always, we should always try to do our best and be our best, become the best person that we can be because God created us in His image. But you listen to your preacher. It is only a small jump. It is only a small jump from trying to spend your life being all you can be to the point of making yourself your own idol. In that book, In that book, Rick Warren begins it with four words. It's not about me. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us a picture of a life well lived. Now think about that. He gave us a picture of a life well lived. Lived. He didn't come to preserve himself. He didn't come promoting himself. He didn't come to give his life for himself. He gave his life for you. He gave his life for me. And self always has a way of self promoting. If Jesus had come for himself, can I just be honest with you? If Jesus had come for himself, he would abandon, he would have abandoned the cross. He would have walked away and left us holding the bag to find our own way. But in dying, in dying, he gave us a secret way of finding significance. It's not by what we get. It's by what we give. In Scripture, there are three things that work together. Satan, sin, and self. When you get one, normally you get all three. In Jesus' death, He taught us that we should love one another like He loved us. Can I say that again? We should love one another like He loved us. We look in the Scripture, we find that He goes on to teach, Greater love hath no man than this, that He lay down his life for his friends. Living your life for yourself leads nowhere. Living your life for others is the key. At the cross, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will decrease. Isn't that why Paul says, my prayer is that He increase and I decrease. If you're centered on yourself tonight, if everything revolves around you, we've been studying this on Wednesday nights about the idols of our life. It can be your mate. It can be your family. It can be your church. It can be your job. It can be your money. It can be your retirement. It can be anything. It's a good thing that when it's made the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. At the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. There, by faith. I received my sight so I could see myself like God sees me. Sin and self are done when we come to the cross. Are done when we come to the cross. But how is that possible? That's because at the cross, that word finished takes a different meaning. Not done. Not stopped. It is finished. It is completed. No more work to be done. And that's the last thing that I'll just share with you for a minute. At the cross, the plan of salvation is finished. That means there's nothing else that God can do. Peter writes, Christ died once. The godly for the ungodly. That He might Bring us to God. It's because those wages that we've been talking about, the wages of sin, that it's death. That means death that's both physical death. You know that Adam and Eve were not dying until they sinned. You want to know why people die today? Because of sin. You want to know why people get sick today? Because of sin. Physical death. But more than that, it's eternal death. You see, if we're left to ourselves, we have no hope. (sighs) But when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, we can be forgiven of sin. We can be justified by His grace. We can be made right before God. Jesus said, Tetelestai! And it means I've done all I can... Now, you're not going to like this, some of those who... Who believe different than I? But let me tell you what I believe Jesus says to us: I have done all I can do. Now you have the invitation, and the decision is up to you. Heaven or hell is the choice you must make. Eternity calls. Which road will you take? Romans sixteen. They were in jail. Paul and Silas, Philippian jail. Earthquake came, the jail flung open. Middle of the night, the jailer awakes and he looks and sees the door open. He's about to kill himself because he knows if he don't kill himself, his supervisor kill him. If he lets those folks, those Christians get away, Paul and Silas says, "Don't kill yourself. We're still here." Here's his question: What must I do to be saved? Paul points him to the cross and says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved in your house. He could say this with assurance and authority because of the cross. Because at the cross is the place where you can see the light. I asked you this question. Have you allowed Jesus to change you from the inside out? Have you taken up a walk with Jesus? I I want to say this to us Baptists. We are notorious for getting people to pray a prayer and thinking that's good. But I'll say this to you. The more I read Leonard Ravenhill, the more I read Vance Havner and the like, there are many people who prayed a prayer and never had a change of heart, and they're going to bust hell wide open, sitting on a pew for 20, 30, or 40 minutes or years. Because when Jesus comes in, it changes your speech. It changes your actions. It changes your friends sometimes. Either it changes your friend, gives you a new friend, or either it changes your friends because your old friends become new friends and so you've got a whole bunch of new things going on in your life. It changes all these things. Do you know why all these things change in our lives when we come to Christ? Because He changes our I'm going to make a mess of this story, but I feel impressed that it, that it speaks to us tonight, so I'm going to try to tell it. It's from old mythology, Greek mythology. There was a, um, an island in mythology, and on that island there were some women. The creatures had a face like a woman, body like a bird, and they could sing the most alluring song that you can imagine. Ships would come by there. When they'd sing the song, it was called a siren. Ships would come by there and, and men have been told to jump off in the sea because they heard that, that wonderful voice, that female voice luring them. And they would jump off in the ocean, go into that voice, and they would perish in the ocean. It's been said, so the legend goes, that ships have turned and been crushed on the rock trying to get to that voice. One captain is, didn't want to leave, didn't want to lose his crew, so you know what he did? Knowing he was going that way? The, the fable goes that he put beeswax in their ears and then he wrapped their heads so they couldn't hear. And then because he had to manage the boat, he tied himself to the mask so he wouldn't be tempted. I tell that to say this. Anybody can avoid temptation when they're tied to the mask. In our case, the mask of legalism. We know what's right. We just do what's right. Not because we want to do what's right. In fact, we kind of shun those folks that feel like they've got enough freedom to do what they want to do, but we, we're tied to the mask. And we never get inside of our heart to say, why is that longing there? Why do I want to sin? Why do I want to promote self? You see, the plan of salvation is finished to change us from the inside.